Well, this morning we will continue our look at the Gospel of John. If you turn your Bibles with me to chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 30. Please listen as I read. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, having just sung the song taken from a moment in a man's life of great grief and sorrow, blessed be your name even when the road is a road of suffering. We can only say that because you first went down the road of suffering for us. So Lord, I ask that your spirit would fill this place and remind us yet again of what you accomplished when you came to join us in the human race 2,000 years ago. For we ask in your name, amen. So one of the benefits that we have as Christians having the Bible is we have four different eyewitness accounts of the crucifixion. Well, we have four Gospels. Two of the Gospel writers were actually there, and then two of them received their information from those who were there. But we have four different perspectives, which I think is wonderful. And some, one of the writers includes these things, and another writer may not include those things, but includes these other things. If you've noticed, John has given us relatively little about the crucifixion itself. It has not been his burden to get into the details of the cross and, and all of the events. If you, if you compare it to other Gospels, we get more information there. For instance, just to, to note one thing, uh, John doesn't tell us that the weasel Pilate 
in addition to all the weaselly things we've already seen, he sent Jesus to Herod when he found out that Jesus was from Galilee and said, oh, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Maybe I won't have to sentence him after all. I'll let Herod deal with this. Well, John doesn't tell us about that because he's not concerned with all of those details. We've seen all the way along from the very beginning of John's gospel, his primary concern has been to persuade Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And the big problem that the Jews would have had with Jesus is a crucified Messiah. Messiahs don't get crucified. Messiahs are kings. This coming one, this king who was going to reign on the throne of Jacob forever doesn't die. That doesn't fit the narrative. And so John, if you've noticed, has increasingly quoted from the Old Testament showing this was indeed the plan for the Messiah. For instance, where we ended up last week, he quotes from Psalm 22 about the soldiers dividing his outer garments and casting lots to see who would get uh, the tunic. That's such an insignificant part of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That gets to the heart of what was happening at the gospel uh, on the cross. Well, John doesn't give us that, but he gives us this little detail. They, they threw dice to see who would get his clothes to show even down to that level, God planned this whole thing out. So that's where we pick up the narrative. That's what's going on. The soldiers are casting lots and uh, having their little fun to see who gets his clothing. Therefore, verse 25 begins, the soldiers did these things, but, and in the Greek construction, there's a very clear, on the one hand, the soldiers did this. On the other hand, this was happening. And the other hand is standing there next to Jesus hanging on the cross is his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. If you've seen the pictures, which I'm sure you have, you think of the cross up on a hill probably off the ground like this one. That's not how the Romans did crucifixion. He would have been, I mean, the, his feet would have been down about this level. He was very close to the ground, and his these, these women would have been very close to him, able to talk to him and hear him and such. We're not exactly sure how many women are here because, again, in the, in the Greek, it's a little bit ambiguous. It's possible there are only two. It's possible there are only three. It's possible there are four. I'm going with four. Uh, as you compare John with Matthew and Mark and Luke, it seems most likely there are four women here. His mother, Mary... Mary's sister, then another Mary, the wife of, Clo of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. So three, three Marys here. Mary Magdalene, we get just a little bit of information about her. She was a woman who had seven demons in her that apparently Jesus had cast out. And I cannot wait to meet Mary Magdalene. What was it like to have seven, not one, not two, not four, can you imagine what a mess her life was with seven demons possessing her? And Jesus cast them out, and she naturally followed him the rest of, rest of his time. Mary, mother of Clopas, is, is interesting. We don't know much about her. Uh, she had sons, James and Joseph, we understand. But it's Mary's sister that is intriguing here. 
So Jesus' mother Mary has a sister. She's not named here. But if we compare it again with those other accounts, it is most likely this other woman's name is Salome, who is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Do any of you know who the sons of Zebedee were? James and John, the author of this book. All right, think that through. Mary, Jesus' mother. Her sister, Salome, John's mother. Ergo, John is Jesus' cousin. That helps explain why Jesus hands off responsibility of Mary, his mother, to John. Doesn't it seem strange? If you know anything about that culture, Jesus had other brothers. James and Jude, who wrote books in the New Testament, they were Jesus' brothers. It would have been the most natural thing for one of them to take responsibility for mom. The problem is they didn't believe in Jesus. At this point, they're not at the cross. As far as we know, they were probably still back up in Galilee. They didn't believe Jesus. They were actually kind of thankful that he was finally out of their hair. It wasn't until after the resurrection that James and Jude believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Jesus is there, and here he is at the very end of his life, hanging on a cross, and he looks down and sees his mother, and he does what a good son would do. Ma'am, he, he calls her woman, but in our day, that's such a woman, you know, that's, a, that's not what he meant. It's, it's more like madam, ma'am, behold your son. John, behold now your mother. Take care of her. We know that Joseph is dead by this time. We don't know when he died. So this woman is a widow. Now her oldest son is dying. Can you imagine what this was like for Mary? Think about what she's been through. This is the man that she didn't expect to have, right? She's a young, unmarried woman, minding her own business, and out of nowhere, an angel shows up and says, hey, favored one, you're about to be pregnant. And she's like, no, 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 I'm not married yet. No, you're about to be pregnant. How is that possible? Because God's spirit is going to come upon you and put a baby in you, but not just a baby, the baby. This is what she was told at that time. Oh, wrong page. This is what she was told at that time. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now get this. This is what this baby is going to be. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Appealing straight back to Isaiah 9 that we looked at over the Advent season. His kingdom will increase. There will be no end to, the, to, to his increase. Your son is going to sit on the throne forever. Now, when I hear the word forever, I do not draw a line in my mind to him dying. Do you? There's something that doesn't compute with forever and dying. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And we know what happened. She got pregnant. She had a baby. This is the one who's going to sit on the throne forever. This is the Son of God. And here she is 30-some years later watching him die right before her very eyes. She may have gotten a little bit of advance warning of this. After Jesus was born and they brought him to the temple to do what Jews were required to do, a man named Simeon showed up and said, I've been waiting for the Messiah. The Lord Revealed to me that I would live to see the Messiah. And he says some amazing things. He says to the Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Again, quoting from Isaiah, I see this is the one who's coming to deliver us. And it says, his father and his mother, so Joseph and Mary here, were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, and this is what the prophet said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Can you imagine? Yeah, he's the Messiah, but let me tell you, Mother Mary, this child you're bearing People are going to trip all over him, and many of them are going to be against him. And then he says this to Mary. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And later on, she, we are told that Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. And you have to wonder, how often did she go back to that statement? What do you mean he's going to be like a sword that, that pierces to my soul? And you just wonder as she's watching him hanging on the cross, if she doesn't remember those words as it feels like there's a dagger in her heart. This is my son. And he has certainly caused many to oppose him. And he has certainly been the cause of the fall of many. And the hearts of many have been revealed as the vast majority of his people 
were crying out for him to be crucified. Some of you in this room have had to do what every parent understands we're not supposed to have to do, and that is to bury one of your children. When you add that grief to the promises made about Jesus, you think, I can't begin to comprehend what Mary was experiencing watching her son be killed in the most torturous and grotesque way we can imagine. She's there, and Jesus is not thinking about himself. Mother, woman, ma'am, behold your son. I have to think that the reason he said woman instead of mom is to distance himself. He's going away. Their relationship is about to change. It's no longer son and mother. He is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and Mary will fall in among all the other disciples, and he's creating some distance, but he does care for her. So there he is on the cross. It says, knowing all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. The way this is phrased, it comes across in the English, it's very clear in the Greek, it sure seems like this is a self-conscious thinking of, I know there's one more thing I have to do and say to fulfill the scripture, I have to say I'm thirsty. We don't know exactly which verse he's referring to in the Old Testament. There is something kind of like this in Psalm 22. By the way, if you haven't read Psalm 22 lately, this afternoon, after you go to frontrangealliance.org and do everything you're supposed to do on there, open up Psalm 22 and read Psalm 22 as Jesus speaking. It'll give you profound insight as to what he was experiencing as he hanged on the cross. And there is one verse in Psalm 22 that, that Jesus may be referring to, but probably he's talking about Psalm 69, where again, same thing, read it, and read it as Jesus on the cross, because that's ultimately what it's about. And there, David, who's being oppressed by his enemies, he's being uh, persecuted uh, unjustly, and he says, I was thirsty, and they gave me gall and vinegar for my thirst. Jesus says, I'm thirsty, and they give him the, the wine the soldiers drank. This was the cheap stuff. This was uh, mixed with vinegar. It wasn't very good, and they, and they dipped the sponge in there and stuck it up for him to drink. Now, again, if you compare gospel accounts, you know that earlier they tried to give him some kind of wine mixed with myrrh, and he spit it out. The reason for that was that was a sedative, and he wanted nothing to do with something that would dull the pain because he needed to endure the pain. Here, this is not a sedative. This is nasty stuff, and he knows is about the end anyway, so he drinks it to fulfill the scripture. Now, now get this. This is the one who met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he said, I have the water that is alive. 
And if you drink the water that I can give you, you will never be thirsty again. Out from you will flow streams of living water, a river of living water, and you'll never be thirsty again. But Jesus, in that moment, on the cross, was not partaking of that kind of water. He had to set aside any comfort in order to suffer what he came here to suffer, to drink the cup that he had to be given. No help from the Holy Spirit, no ease from the Father. He had to drink the bitter cup symbolized in the sour wine. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai is the Greek word. When we think of finishing something, we often think of something being done, it's over. And that's true. But if you just think about it ceasing, you miss the point. This tetelestai comes from a family of words of which telos is the, the, the root, and it always has to do with completing, achieving the goal. Some of you have, have uh, run marathons, and your goal is to get to the finish line. And when you get to the finish line, you don't say, whew, that's done, right? I mean, you probably don't say anything. You collapse, <laughs> and you wait for someone to bring you water and you want to sleep or something, and your whole body is screaming at you, why? Why? Did we really need to do this? Was, this? was this worth it? But what you finish when you cross the finish line is the culmination of a whole lot of work to get there. You've been training your body for, if you're smart, months, maybe years, right? continue to go out for mile after mile of runs. I don't know why anybody would do that. You know, the Bible is very, very clear. The wicked run when no one is chasing them. <laughs> so you runners, you need to go to Jesus and stop. But you've been training for years, for months at least. You've been eating a certain thing. You've been trying to, to, to prepare for that. And I understand that most marathon runners don't actually run marathons until the day of. You work your way up to a certain thing and then you just go, you know, and hope you can, hope you can finish. And, and the, the enduring, I, I mean, I, I don't like to run for 26 seconds. Certainly not 26 minutes, but 26, well, you guys are nuts. It's crazy. But when you get done and you think, I finished. It's not that it's over. It's that I achieved my goal. And that's what Jesus is saying. I have done what I came to do. And there's been years working toward this. We don't have much information about his life from birth until he's about 30. We have the one little anecdote when he's at the temple and he, he goes back to the temple as the caravan leaves and his parents realize he's not here and they go back and get him and he says, well, I've got to be in my father's house. We, get, we have that little interchange and then we don't have anything else. 
until it's time for him to start his ministry when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and brings him to John the Baptist and all that. Once that moment came for the next three years, he had a singular focus to get to the cross. And he's on the cross, and he says, to Telestai, I've reached the goal, it is finished. So the question is, what did he finish? What is he completing? What was the goal? Well, there is so much from the Old Testament that would be worth our time to summarize what he means when he says it is finished. But I'm going I'm to limit our uh, examples to two different perspectives. Number one is atonement. So last week, I understand, I left a, little, a few of you frustrated. I made a big deal about Eric and the other men at the ordination council and how uh, I grilled them on atonement and some, one guy didn't even know what atonement was and, and all of that. And, and I made such a big deal that this is the heart and soul of everything we believe and you, know, you almost can't be a Christian if you don't know what atonement is. And then several people said to me, you didn't tell us what atonement is. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. Well, that's okay. Some of you went home and studied and that's good. You should do that. So let me tell you about atonement. When you think of atonement, forever and ever, amen, I want this to stick. And for some of you who've heard this, it has stuck because you told me it stuck. Because last week you said, I thought you were going to go here. From now on, when you think of atonement, you think of two goats. Children, two goats. You can get this. From now on, when you hear the word atonement, you think two goats. This goes back to Leviticus 16, a Jewish ritual that is, continues to this day in the form of Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement is what that means. That was the day when the whole nation of Israel would gather at the temple. And two perfect goats were chosen, spotless, and they were brought to the high priest. And the high priest would take one of the goats and he would place his hands on the head of the goat. And he would confess the sins of all the people while his hands are on the goat. And then that goat, which was called the scapegoat, was run out of the camp into the wilderness and set free. You can't miss the imagery. The sins of the people transferred to the head of that goat and taken away from the people. I want you to imagine you being there, knowing your sin, and you see the sins that you've committed transferred to that goat and it's taken away from you. That would be a wonderful experience, wouldn't it? There's a second goat. It's called the Lord's goat. Same thing. The priest puts his hands on the head of that goat, confesses the sin of the people. That goat is not set free. That goat is killed. And the blood of that goat is sprinkled everywhere. Why? Because from the very beginning, the first man, 
created by God. God warned him, on the day you disobey me, you will die. The wages of sin is death. If the people are sinners, then God's justice demands they die. Again, you can't miss the symbolism. The sins transferred to the head of this goat, and the goat dies in the place of the people. But why do they sprinkle blood everywhere? Those of you who've had young children have probably had a similar experience to this where they get themselves into the chocolate pudding bowl or the chocolate cake with an inch of chocolate icing on it and somehow they, 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 they figure out a way to cover themselves in chocolate and then wherever they go, what do they do? They touch everything, and they leave the stain of chocolate everywhere. Right? You've been there? You may remember doing that yourself when you were a toddler. Every parent has experienced this. Even the most uh, fastidious parents could not keep all children from spreading this uncleanness everywhere. The same thing happens when sinners touch things. They gathered at the temple, the holy place. But you know what? Whether it's the altar or the, the candelabra or the table of showbread or the, the holy of holies, the, the, the door going in there, the, the, the curtain, whether it's just the gates, every single thing that a sinful Jew touched, he made that thing unclean because every Jew who touched it was unclean. This is true of all of us. Every human being who's not in Christ, we are born unclean. And everything we touch becomes unclean because we are stained with sin and we spread our chocolate sin on everything. What cleanses the stain of sin? Only one thing. Death. Blood. So that goat that was killed, his blood had to be sprinkled on the people and the furniture, and everything else because they were unclean because they had been touched by unclean people. But there's a problem. The writer of Hebrews comes along and tells us the blood of goats cannot do anything for the sins of human beings. Goats are not worth the price of people. God will not accept, ultimately, an animal on your behalf. There had to be a human. He had to be a perfect human. A spotless human. 
a man who not a single time sinned. If he sinned even once, just once, he himself would need a sacrifice. There had to be a human being who obeyed God perfectly, willing to take the place of sinners. This is why when Jesus appears for the very first time and John the Baptist sees him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is both goats. Imagine, if you will, Jesus is on the cross and the high priest is placing his hands on the head of Jesus and he's confessing your sin onto Jesus. Jesus is outside the camp. He's the scapegoat taken away from the people. But he has to die because he has our sin on him. And God the Father looks at him in that moment and he has all of our wickedness on him. And here the Holy Son of God is unclean. Not because of his own wickedness, but because of ours. That's what he came to do. To take away the sins of the world. And every human being who believes that has their sins transferred to the head of Jesus and God punished him in your place and he finished his task. That's atonement. Two goats. There's another aspect to it. Atonement doesn't really cover the fullness. Some of your translations have a better word. It's called propitiation. Now, some of your translations don't like that word because nobody can pronounce it, much less knows what it means. But it's a much better word to describe what's going on here. Propitiation means to make someone propitious. Does that help? You need to be propitious towards someone if you are angry at them, okay? Someone has offended you and you're angry. You need to be propitiated. Your anger needs to be appeased, assuaged, and lots of other $7 words. Your anger needs to somehow be taken away from you. If you are, if you are justly angry, then the way that that just anger is taken away is for something, some kind of restitution. Jesus, not Jesus, the Father is angry at sin and sinners who commit sin. We sometimes use the language, God loves a sinner but hates a sin. You don't find that language in the Bible. He is good to sinners, but the Scripture says he is angry with the wicked every day. While you were yet his enemy, Christ died for you. God's angry at sinners, and how can he stop being angry? He needs to be propitiated. Somehow that anger needs to turn into favor by pouring out his wrath on his son. He can now turn to you and me and be favorable. He can be angry at his son because his son has our sin on him and turn to us and say, we get along just fine now because I'm not angry with you. I exhausted my anger 
on the Lamb of God. Jesus came to do that, and he did it. He finished the atoning work. Praise the Lord. The second image I want to pull together here is a little different maybe than what you've ever thought of. The more you recognize what Jesus did and all the things spoken of of Jesus, you realize the entire Old Testament is so rich in explaining what Christ came to do. You know, the writer of Hebrews calls the Old Covenant a parable. Most of our translations call it a symbol, but the word is parable. He's saying there, the whole Old Testament, all the Old Covenant is basically a story to proclaim Jesus. And we've already seen that here with the sacrifices. But there's another, another one. That's, this one may kind of surprise you. So in Exodus chapter 20, we get a, uh, a monumental event in the life and the, the history of Israel. Exodus 19 and 20, God has led Israel out of slavery and he, he establishes his covenant with Israel. And the heart and soul, the core of the covenant that God made with Israel, I'm going to ask you what it is, and please tell me you know the answer. The core of the covenant with Israel is, thank you, two of you, the Ten Commandments. All right, next time the Glory of the New Covenant class comes in NCST, I want all of you there, because you need it. It's the heart and soul of, of the covenant. So we get the Ten Commandments. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments. Well, that's not true. A lot of people don't know the Ten Commandments. But you know some of them. But it's after the Ten Commandments that a lot of people don't know. And, and starting in Exodus 21 and following, we get what's called casuistic law, case law. So the Ten Commandments are the thou shalt not, thou shalt do these things. But then God gives a lot of cases. Because, you know, if he listed every application of the law, the, the Bible would be huge. Right? So if your ox gores your neighbor's puppy, this is what you're supposed to do in restitution. Well, what if it's my donkey that squashes my neighbor's puppy, right? What if it's my cow that sits on my neighbor's cow? You you could give every example that would take too much. So you give one case, and then it's up to the people to apply it wherever it is appropriate. So that's what you get in Exodus 21 and following. It's called the Holiness Code. The beginning of the Holiness Code in Exodus 21 has a very strange set of rules, set of laws for the people of Israel. And we don't like these very much. And we, number one, we have kind of a caricature of what's actually being said. And number two, in our feminist society, this just strikes us the wrong way. But it's what the Word of God says, and it basically goes like this. It was okay for the Jews to take on slaves. Now, right there, we have to qualify. Jewish slavery was not like American and European slavery. American slavery was, we go to another nation and we take people and force them into slavery. The Bible, the Old Testament talks about that too. It's called man-stealing. And it was a capital offense in Israel. If you just went and stole a person and forced them into slavery, that was a capital offense. So anybody who says that the Bible, even the Old Testament, is okay with American slavery hasn't read their Bible. But there was another way to become a slave. And that was you took on a debt that you could not pay back. And so in order to make restitution, you had to sell yourself as an indentured servant to the one you owe the money to. And that's how they would pay off their debts. 
The good news is there was a cap on it. God said after seven years, slaves go free. And every 50 years, every slave goes free no matter what. So if you, you know, if you played this right, like two months before the year of Jubilee started, you take out a big debt, buy your stuff, and oh, I got to serve you for two months and then I'm free. I'm sure there were people that did that. So he talks about slavery. He says, so if you become a slave and you come in with a wife, then when the seven years are up, then you and your wife and whatever children have been born to you, you all leave together. You've paid your debt and now you go. But there's another scenario, and this is where our sensibilities get kind of fired up. God said in his law, if you come in single and the master gives you a wife and she has children while you're enslaved, when your seven years are up, you go, but the wife and the children stay with the master. It sounds crass to our ears, but there's some complexity here. There's more going on than we tend to know. First of all, just think it through. This man came to enslavement because he had no money. Right? He's going to leave with how much money? No money. So in protection of the wife and the children, no, no, you don't get to leave with this woman and these kids because you don't have any money. You got to go prove yourself that you've learned your lesson, right? And the, the whole idea of the bride price, maybe you've heard of that term, sometimes it's called a dowry, although the word dowry usually has to do with being the, the, husband, the groom's parents. The bride price was paid to the wife's parents. And it was a very economical transaction, and of course we hate that. But it's not the idea of buying the woman. That's tend to how we think of it. It actually is upholding the value of the woman. My daughter, if I'm the master here, my daughter is very valuable in our household, quite literally a huge part of our economic growth. She works hard. That's how, they, that's how it happened back then. And if I'm going to give my daughter to you in marriage, this is taking a significant, a valuable person of my local economy here away. So the, the transaction is you have to compensate me for this value that's not coming into your household. That's what's going on. Also, it's a way for the father to be sure this guy will take care of my daughter. He's got the means. You know, it's, uh, it maybe is growing less common today, but in Christian circles at least, most men have the, uh, the manners to go to the father of the bride and say, can I marry your daughter? And, and when those men come to me and ask that, I'm going to have a few questions. And one of those questions is, do you have a job? And what are your plans to have a job? Where are you heading? Are you both going to have to come back and live in my basement soon? Right? And a lot of times when the bride price was paid to the dad, he would put the money aside knowing that millennialism is not a 21st century situation. 
that this dope may not provide for my daughter and I need some money to help them out. That's what a lot of the wise fathers would do. So it was, it was preparation for that as well. So the servant gets a wife in his servitude, has children. The seventh year comes and he goes. That's not the end of the story. If he will go and earn money, he can come back to his master and pay the bride price and take his wife and his children. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said to believers, you are not your own. In other words, you do not belong to yourself, but you were bought with a price. Referring back to the Jewish custom of the bride price. Do you see what's going on there? We were born into a master's house. And this one was a cruel master. The Bible describes master that we came, were born into as master sin. We were enslaved to master sin. And we were enemies of God. And we deserved God's wrath. And the only hope of being delivered from that slavery was for somebody to come, for a husband to come and pay the bride price and purchase us out of slavery. And that's what Jesus came to do. He said, I want her. You are her. I want her her to be my bride. What's the price? Death on the cross, which he willingly paid to purchase his bride. And all of these themes come together. We were enslaved. The husband wanted us. He paid the ultimate Price to redeem us from that master to bring us into his kingdom where we will live together forever with our groom. That's what Jesus came to do. And so when he says, Tetelestai, it is finished, he's declaring, I have come to be the, the Lord's goat. And I have come to redeem my people. And I have come to pay the bride price to take my bride. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Most people who were crucified hanged there for days. Not Jesus. Do you remember Jesus said, no one takes my life from me? Not even natural processes. I give my life 
I'm in complete control of when I die. How many times did they try to kill him before this moment? No. It's not time yet. Once he's tasted the sour wine, he knows that those hours hanging there as darkness came over the earth and he received the wrath of the Father on himself. He's taking care of his mother. It is finished. And he bows his head. And it's a very active word. He willingly, on purpose, gave up his spirit. It was done. If you are a believer here today, every sin you have ever committed or will commit was put on the head of Jesus Christ and punished, and it's done. We were talking today in the Sunday seminar. Dan Gammy did a great job. We were talking about chastisement and how after you give out the chastisement, you need to reconcile and then bury it, be done with it. Don't continue to hang it over your kids' heads and remind them day after day after day of how they failed. That's not gospel parenting because when Jesus takes your punishment, it is finished. And God does not continue to remind you of your past sins. The devil does, but God's not interested in that. If you are a believer here today, the Lord Jesus loved you so much that he gave his life to be the bride price to take you as his bride. How do you know he loves you? Because you feel loved? Please don't base your understanding of whether or not he loves you on your feelings. Feelings deceive us a lot. Feelings are, are tossed around in there by all kinds of things. No, you look at the cross. He loved you enough to pay the price. You don't need any other proof. He loves you, and he loved you to the end. It is finished. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have very little in, by way of response other than to say thank you. And to say thank you with our lives. We are called to present our bodies as living sacrifices. You gave your life for us. Now we give our lives for you. We repudiate sin, we reject it, we turn from it. How can we who've been made clean continue to live unclean lives? It's, it's inconsistent, it's wrong, it's, it's trampling underfoot your blood. Give us a passion and a zeal for holiness because of the price you paid for us. And Lord, as the enemy tempts us to doubt, may we look at the cross and remember you love us and you loved us to the end. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.